City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, production. working the theater seminars, now in their 30th year, coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Today's seminar is devoted to the production of the Broadway musical Hairspray, with the members of its creative and production teams. We will follow the show from its concept as a work for the stage through to the current production on Broadway now. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing, and now with great pleasure, let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, Ted Chapin, President of the Rogers and Hammerstein Organization and Secretary of the Wings Board of Directors, Mr. Ted Chapin. Thank you, Isabel. Um, it's, it's a happy occurrence when Broadway has a humongous hit, as it does in Hairspray, and I want to start by congratulating you all. I know it's not easy, but <laughs> we'll, we'll, you'll tell us how easy it actually was. Um, I would like to begin to introduce the, the panel. There are a lot of hyphenates here. I hope I'll get them right. Starting at my extreme right, director, Jack O'Brien. Producer, Margot Lyon. Co-librettist, Mark O'Donnell. Co-librettist, <laughs> Tom Meehan. Convenient of you to sit together. <laughs> Composer, co-lyricist, Mark Shaman. Co-lyricist, Scott Whitman. Producer, general manager, Richard Frankel. Choreographer Jerry Mitchell. Well done. Done. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, it is my understanding, although you can debunk it if this is not not the case, that this is a musical that was put together the old-fashioned way. By which I mean, a producer had an idea and took it forward. Um, so I believe that that it was this all started with Margot Lyon. So what I wanted to ask Margot is, of other musicals that you've done, um, I know Jelly's Last Jam, a tough musical about the. Uh, Blacks and in the South, and interesting thing, interesting musical, uh, Triumph of Love, a uh, Commedia dell'arte musical, Hairspray. <laughs> well, I know. Well, actually, Jack and I were talking about that on the way down. That this is uh, this was sort of an unusual um, choice for us, but a, a, a blessed one, I have to say. I, I think uh, the origins of Hairspray are, are real evidence of a door closes and a window opens, because in uh, 1998, I had been um, very saddened by the close of, of Triumph of Love, a show that I loved and uh, believed in and just didn't have a run. And I spent about six months in a complete funk trying to think whether I was going to ever do another show. And then after about six months, I thought, well, you know, I, I need to f try and find something new to adapt. And um, actually, the producer, Scott Rudin, had several years before suggested that I look at Hairspray because the truth is I wanted to do a show about young people that would bring in a broader demographic to the theater and I wanted it to have a lot of dance and I had been kind of interested in Clueless and he and Scott had produced Clueless uh, the film 
And he said, no, you don't want to do Clueless, you want to do Hairspray. And I said, no, I don't want to do Hairspray. I actually didn't understand the movie, the appeal of the movie. I don't want to do it. So this was a kind of running gag for several years. And then when I was coming out of this disappointment, um, Triumph of Love, which I still believe in, I want to say, um, I rented, a, I had the flu, and I rented a whole lot of movies, one of which was Hairspray. And about, I don't know, somewhere <coughs> a few minutes into the movie, I said, yes. This is what I want to do. It had all of the ingredients that uh, one wants for a show as a larger-than-life character who wanted something, who had obstacles to overcome. Where and was it placed, Margot? And <laughs> it was in Baltimore, which is where I grew up. <laughs> and the other thing about it is it had a really, I thought, a very contemporary <coughs> style, an opportunity for a contemporary style, and it had a personality. And one of the things that I look for when I'm <coughs> trying to select material uh, to work on to a, a, a commission is a personality. Because too much of uh, Broadway, I think, or too much of, I don't know, entertainment in general is too generic. It's just sort of template work. And the voice of John Waters is nothing if it is not um, very personal to him. And so that was the origin. So you had to get the rights from John Walters or from the movie Actually, company? the rights were held by New Line. So <coughs> in, I began uh, negotiating for the rights in the fall of 98. And um, in the spring of 99, the rights agreement was concluded. And uh, the funny thing about this, maybe I'm telling tales out of school, but I don't think so, is I found out in the negotiating process that Scott, who had suggested the project to me had actually had the rights before me, and I had not known that. <laughs> so, um, but he had anyway. let them. He had let them go. He had let them go, and just to jump forward, one of the great thrills of when we were in previews was I said to Scott, "Thank you for never acting on this," and he said, "I couldn't have done it as well," which I'm going to take as a genuine comment, and it was very moving, and I was delighted. But yes, he had. And then the first person I went to to work on the show was Mark Shaman. Before we get there, um, John Waters is clearly a figure. Now, even though he may not have had the rights, right. where did, I mean, was he informed? Was he? Yes. And then when I, after I negotiated, we're in the process actually of negotiating for the rights, New Line, you know, was emphatic about the point that they wanted me to meet with John, <coughs> which I did. Now, John and I are contemporaries. We both grew up in Baltimore. We both grew up in very, um, oh Did God. you have mothers like that? No. We both <laughs> grew up in very respectable areas of Baltimore. Um, we went to, you know, very uh, button-down schools, and yet we had never known each other. Um, and when I had my first meeting with him, which was at Orso, I made the, uh, the lunch meeting, I was really apprehensive. I thought, what am I going to talk to this man about? Because hairspray as most of or many of you know, is his most <coughs> sort of mainstream event. And um, I thought, oh, God, is he going to, you know, what's he going to I had never seen him. I didn't know anything about him. And, of course, it turned out that he is a total gent. He is just a wonderful man. And we had a lovely meeting. And I asked him, actually, if he wanted to adapt the material himself, hoping that he would say no, but um, because he has never had any experience in the theater. But needed to do that, and he said no. <laughs> and, um, but we agreed. I, I gave him, you know, my promise that I would honor 
his voice in this material and that I wanted him very involved from the beginning and that I wanted him to feel part of the team because it wouldn't the project wouldn't have the authenticity without that involvement. Was he helpful in places along the way? <clears throat> he was. I think initially, we can we'll talk to the creatives about this, but initially I think John thought he was going to stay outside of the process and just sort of dip in here and there. But as it turned out, I think all of us would agree that he is very much part of our family. Now, Mark, since you were the first one she approached, and you are, you are a composer, you are also an arranger, you are also a conductor and an orchestrator, and you've done Hollywood stuff. So do you think <laughs> <laughs> that she came to you because the movie of Hairspray uses, uses songs from the period, yes? And also some, some original material on the movie, I think? Is there one? Whatever. There's the lots of theme song is original. There's lots of music in the movie, but, but what, was, the, uh, was the idea to adapt existing things or write something new? Oh, uh, huh? answer any yeah. of them. <laughs> <laughs> she came to you, what did she say? Well, actually, I wonder what Margo's... <coughs> I never asked Margo, like... Why exactly me? I mean, <laughs> was it... It's too late. Was it different people saying me, or had you... Well, uh, you know, you and I had talked before. I had asked you to do another show. I, had, I remembered Amy. Mark. Uh, Sister Amy, yeah, yeah, which never happened. But um, I remembered <laughs> you. And Mark is... Uh, a name, Mark Shaman is a name that came up frequently among producers for someone to bring back to the theater, so... Well, Scott Rudin had actually asked Mark. But I didn't know that. <laughs> I had actually gone to lunch to, and Paul Rudnick. With Paul Rudnick, the three of us did. Uh, to oh, and you to discuss to Hairspray? No, we yeah, wanted to do it, and Scott just was too busy doing 16 million movies. Sort of, sort of fizzled. And it just never happened. So when it happened, when I got the call again, I was certainly going to make sure it was not going to fizzle again, and it was also at a point writing movie scores where I was just at a dead end and so desperately wanting to get back to musical theater, which is what I wanted to always do. And every movie I work on, I try to, <laughs> you can hear in the scores, it sounds like show music. I mean, right. There's lyrics to every theme in my head. And, and it was a chance for Scott and I to write something. I, I was hoping, because it just seemed like perfect for our <coughs> personalities. And that, that required a little selling on our part, because Margo was scared of, of hiring a couple <laughs> to write. <laughs> But um, so we we said we would write four songs uh, on spec. On spec. Yes, I said I wouldn't audition <laughs> as a as a composer of music, <laughs> <laughs> but as lyricists <laughs> that we were unproven we wrote, we wrote. to the theater uh, crowd, and so that we would. So one afternoon we wrote four songs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in fine musical theater <laughs> and they're still in the show. Which four are they? <laughs> yes, yes. Which four are they? Uh, no, it's okay. No, no. no. <laughs> Good morning, Baltimore. Uh, welcome to the '60s. I know where I've been, and big, blonde, and beautiful. Wow. Should we take a little <laughs> glimpse of the show now, so that we, everybody watching, and, and, and yes, no, no, in the monitor, we, let's see a little <laughs> bit of uh, a little bit of hairspray.
Margaret, you're a secret rock and roller, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I, I, this, uh, I don't know if I should say this, reveal this, but hey, why You've already revealed not? Something. I've revealed everything else. <laughs> um, Margaret's so scared of revealing things. <laughs> <and> <laughs> what we say, she, we get report cards every time we speak about. That's she not said, true. Don't, she said, don't, don't be too, uh, don't talk about the show like it's a success because people don't like that. So actually, we prefer if you were refer to it as Moose Murders too. <laughs> For the rest of the panel. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to reveal something, Marco. We were reveal. waiting for the reveal. I don't know, Mark. Um, well, this show takes place in 1962 in Baltimore, which is actually, and, and Tracy's graduating from high school, which is actually the year I graduated from high school. And the Buddy Dean show, which is the dance show that this, uh, the Corny Collins show is modeled after, is a show I used to watch when I came home from school and dance with my pillow. So it's your story, so. and we didn't know that. Well, yeah. John Waters sort of. was dancing with his pillow. Yes, he was dancing <laughs> with the refrigerator door. Yeah, that's right. It probably <laughs> is, well, you know, uh, everyone's story on this panel. And, you know, for the most part, probably everyone who's in New York City. Right. But, uh, you know, it's my story. I mean, I realized we were writing um, things for the, uh, the book they give out. The brochure. The brochure. And I was really thinking about it, and I realized it's so my story. I mean, a chubby kid who loves black music, and all I ever wanted to do in junior high school was, uh, if I saw the black kids walking by the auditorium, I was always at the piano, I would immediately start playing the Spinner song or something. I wanted the black kids to like me and know that I got black music and I loved it. And, and, and so writing the show, I didn't even realize this while we were working on the show, but... Um, Oh, that's great. I, was like, <laughs> I, want, I wanted to pick up something that, that Isabel said. You, you had said earlier that, that you, w you were hoping to find a new audience for this show. Um, have you been able to find a new audience? And can, can students get tickets to the show? Or it, well, yes. We, we actually have just started a, a, a lottery began in the beginning of December where we have uh, 20, $25 tickets um, available. And how many are there, Richard? 20? I think there's 45. All together, because we also have the standing rooms. And uh, I think, Richard, wouldn't you agree that the great thrill of this has been the, the How do you get the $25 ticket? It's a lottery. You, Richard? You go to the theater at 5 o'clock, and they take names, and then there's a lottery drawing an hour later. So you don't have to stand in line for hours and hours. Wow. Not bad. And that's it. So we have a you very, you know, we, you never know really what a show is going to be. You can't, you can't imagine that in terms of the appeal. Um, you hope it's appealing to a lot of people, but you don't really know. And we, we hadn't thought of this as a family show, but it turns out that this is a real family show. And so I think the demographic is, is uh, extremely broad. And we have kids starting at about age four or five who come to this show. And we have a rather substantial contingent of um, uh, teenage girls who give their birthday parties there. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. And then we have traditional theater goers. And we have a really, we've, we've managed to uh, appeal to a demographic that is particularly difficult, which is the sort of 25, 20 to 20, uh, 25, 30 year olds. People who don't, I don't think, usually go to the theater, musical theater, and they just love it. So I think we've... Uh, Do you scale the house in, in any particularly different way, trying to, 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 to get your demographics, or is it a pretty standard scaling of Broadway these days? It's pretty standard, actually. There aren't a lot of options. 
right. given there, what th these things cost. Just a certain number <coughs> of, of, of seats, and you can, you got to right. put the... The standing room's adorable, on. though, because they keep coming back, and they now they dance the dances in and the back. Yeah, they know the <laughs> yeah, but they've taken away a whole bunch of standing room in that theater by putting more paying seats in there. Yeah. I was amazed at the right mm -hmm. in the back oh, of the, the, the auditorium. I mean, well, our challenge that we feel we're really dedicated to meeting is to bring in an African-American audience. This is something that's very important to us because of the theme of the show. And, um, you know, so this is, this is a commitment we've made and we're going to work hard. We can, we'll continue to work hard to try and do that. Well, one of the, one of the things that, I, that I, I was aware of when I saw it uh, last week is that the, the, although I think people would mostly think that it's a musical comedy and sort of frivolous, the fact is that there's a lot of stuff in the show that's actually quite interesting. And I was, for instance, I was aware of the fact that the opening number is segregated, although I don't think anybody is aware of that. Mm -hmm. But the blacks are dancing there and the whites are dancing mm -hmm. over there. And I thought mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that really indicates that there's, there's, there's something underneath here that's a little bit more, mm -hmm. has a little more meat on the bones than, than, than you might think. Well, that's that man there. <laughs> was that, was that your, your well, doing, Jerry? Yeah, it was a subtle. It was a subtle thing, but it was something that I needed to pay attention to. And uh, it's the whole theme of the show that, you know, Tracy integrates the blacks and whites dancing together on national television for the first time. So it's difficult in a musical comedy of this nature to uh, bring that entertainment to an audience without being too heavy-handed. Was, it was a challenge and just something that I... It tried to put he in. He did it in the Madison too. Yeah, yeah. choreographic yeah. puzzle. Choreographic mm -hmm. figure out how to yeah. never give away that moment at the end where they're completely integrated, integrated. integrated yeah. and yet make use of everyone. So yeah, because a lot of the yeah. numbers are the twelve white kids or the twelve African American kids. But when you want all of them on stage together to fulfill the stage, and the only time you really, the story really allows that to happen is in the final scene. Had to find ways to get them on stage together, but keep them segregated. So. Actually, it's also it, it's one of those shows where the, if there's a villain, it's the whitest of the white people, uh -huh. the villain, which I think you have to be careful about. Yeah. Let's bring the librettist in. What, yeah, I'd like yeah. to know when the, the team was assembled. That's where I'm getting to. That's <laughs> it. Okay. Yeah, so we're getting to the librettist here, Tom and, and Mark. Who came first? Well, I came first, uh, I guess, just before Christmas of 99. And, uh, it's interesting you said that Paul Rudnick was going to uh, work on an earlier version because I think Did you the first ever know thing that? I didn't know that. All <laughs> 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 the secrets are going to come out. But the first thing I said to Marco when I sat down, it was like a job interview. I said, "Are you sure you don't want Paul Rudnick for this?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I thought would That's be winning. That's a typical Marco Don. <laughs> 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 to self-deprecation would get me somewhere. See, uh, Mark. And I guess you liked me well enough. You flew me out to L.A. where I met Mark. Uh, and, and Scott, on the eve of your birthday, so your house was full of house guests. Uh, right. But we had a great rapport, uh, and then we started, uh, I wrote like a synopsis of the plot. The movie has many, many scenes and many, many characters. Uh, the first thing to do is try to reimagine it for the stage. Much simpler, fewer characters, uh, a line that was a little friendlier. Uh, John Ware, the playwright, said that everything he knew about dramatic structure he learned as a kid from reading the synopses of the plots on the back of original cast albums. <laughs> so we, we wrote a plot and suggested where numbers would go. We had some existing songs and tried to think of logical, organic ways for the songs uh, to happen. And uh, we went many, many directions over the course of two years, but uh, finally we sort of had something much like what we started with. I think it's important to note here that this, this was actually 
the first magic moment because when you commission a show, um, you ha you have to pray that the, the the artists that you choose to work together, if they haven't worked together before, that the chemistry is going to be right. And that is something even if people really like each other, it just may not work. And um, when I was looking for the person to adapt this, it was a challenge because I had to find somebody who I felt could adapt material and be economical, but who also would appreciate the uh, idiosyncratic nature of Waters' work. And he, uh, Mark was turned out to be a perfect choice. But that, I, of course, was not at that meeting because producers, I think it's not wise for producers to be at meetings when creative people are first getting to know one another. So that was a magic moment. When, when, when you get the rights to a movie, it, it, am I right in saying that, that that then lets you, allows you to use any of the dialogue that's in the movie on in stage case, if you yes. want? I don't know how much actually. Not that well, you did. I'm just <laughs> well, when we wrote this, when we were writing the songs, uh, uh, before Mark had actually joined us, uh, we had taken so titles or lines from the movie and, and, and turned them into production numbers. So Mama, welcome to the, the 60s. 60s when right, it was yeah. a line from the movie. And so. When did Tommy and, and Jack come into it? Uh, I came in in uh, June of 2001, after I'd been on about a year and a half on the project. And I joined it to sort of step in and work with Mark. Yeah, I'd together. never done a Broadway show before. And Margot called me and I said, you sure you don't want Paul Rudnick? <laughs> 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 and, uh, we, thought, we thought we needed a younger voice than Mark. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. The, 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 the torch was passed to an older generation. Now, I know that there were some workshops and or readings of this prior yes, to this. Yes, so well, this, yeah. is, this is all part Now of it gets interesting. The, yeah. bless <laughs> the blessings of this show. Um, and, I, and I actually do believe that, that some projects just you know, have, have been touched. Um, we worked, uh, Mark and Scott and Mark, and I worked with a, a director who was a, a wonderful director called Rob Marshall, who, a director choreographer, for a year on the material, and we did uh, some readings. And um, then, as fate would have it, uh, in 2001, June of 2001, um, Rob was called off to do the movie of Chicago. And um, this is, it's, it's just a wonderful, the way, it's just a wonderful story because uh, Rob lives across the street from me. And it was obviously, as I'm sure all of you can imagine, a rather tense moment when that departure happened. Um, we'd never had the show up on its feet, but, you know, we had worked together for a year. And, um, Rob and I took a walk around Riverside Park together, and you know, you say you say those kind of polite things to one another, you know, because we were very fond of one another, and we said, well, you know, a year from now, you know, you'll have a hit movie, and we'll have a hit show. What was the likelihood of that? I mean, first of all, most shows aren't hits, and probably most movies aren't hits. I don't know. I don't know what the percentages there are. Well, as it turns out, it looks like um, mm. both of us are going to have a very good year. And anyway, so what were we going to do? There we were, and um, and he had done he had done a reading, but not a workshop. No uh, workshops. We, we never did a readings. workshop. We only no, we did, did writers. Writers workshops. And Richard and I were then by then partners. Richard had come on with his partners, Tom Vertel and Steve Baruch, and Mark Routh, and another young producer called Adam Epstein had come on board to work. Uh, we were working together on the show, and we had to make a determination of where to go. And um, there were certain things that were very important to us. 
and um, we wanted a lot of heart in the musical, and we wanted no comment. We didn't. We want. We didn't want a, a director who would comment on the material. Uh, we wanted them to take it as John Waters had represented it as real. I mean, you know, Harvey Firestein was going to be, or Edna was a man playing a woman, but it was going to be a woman. So anyway, and um, we talked about it, and we all decided that we wanted this man here, who... Um, My name is Jack O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd throw Oh, I thought it was Margaret. So what did you do? So we what came to Jack, and, and why don't you tell the story? It's better yeah. coming from you, because actually my interpretation is... Well, I feel that I'm, I'm the last of, of the Red Hot Mamas <laughs> on, on this piece, because um, I had been uh, working with the gentleman across the room from me, Jerry Mitchell, for the better part of two years on a project called The Full Monty. And I knew of this project tangentially, but primarily because Jerry and Mark and Scott had been friends for like 20 years and had known each other over a long period of time. And it came up in conversations a couple of times that this musical was, was in flux and floating around in one thing and another. And I thought, this is a Jerry Mitchell musical. Perfect for Jerry Mitchell. So when I got the call, uh, I simply said that I would not be interested in doing this show without Jerry Mitchell. And there was an interesting couple of weeks <laughs> where, where actually we had to get everybody together and start talking about how this could or could not happen. But it seemed very clear to me that, that uh, the director, I mean, I think, it's, I think you're right. I think fate did step in in some way. The director in this case should have been the last person to come into the mix. Because starting with the music, and then with the story, and then with the movement, uh, I felt that, that if I knew what he wanted, and we had now spent the better part of two years working together, I could, and this is the only way I can express this, protect that. I could feel, I, I felt that, uh, that I, because I have so much faith and trust in Jerry, and our, and our working relationship is so uh, unique, that I felt that if he knew how to make it move, I knew I would know how to protect that. And d were you sent a demo tape and a script, or were you presented it with live I, people? I think you, you didn't want to hear the you music. You didn't want to hear the music. I don't, I don't ever listen <laughs> yeah, to the music. He wanted to read the script. Why don't yeah. you explain why well, you don't okay. want to listen to the music? In, in my vast and checkered career, uh, <laughs> uh, it's so easy to be seduced by music. It's unbelievable. You, you, you hear a score, and you think, oh, this is such good music. I can do this. And, and you think, this script is sort of weird, but uh, I, I can make something out of this. You cannot make anything out of it if the story isn't there. You just can't. And so I made it a hard and fast rule that I will not listen to any music until I've read the script. Because if the script is solid, then you're okay. But if not, you're compensating for the rest of your, your time together. So I read the script and thought, I certainly got the story. I thought there were holes. There were holes in the story at that time. Yeah. And, and, but, but it all seemed to want to succeed. I mean, there, was, there were things that were missing, but there was nothing that was intrinsically wrong. Uh, uh, structurally, we needed to shore up the second act. We needed to spread the strength around. 
we needed a couple of complications. For Tracy. Plot complications. Yeah. Hmm? For Tracy. For Tracy yeah. to keep her going because in the movie, she gets on the show and she gets interested in the guy right away. And so we had a long way to go before uh, in, into the second act. So there were some problems there, but they were not problems that you thought, boy, this just isn't any good. And, and, uh, did, did any of the writers disagree with, with Jack and where the holes were, where the problems no. were? I don't no. think so. No, we all no. agreed. No. You know, it was really interesting we because we went off by ourselves for quite a while, mm -hmm. the, the, the three of us. I mean, the, the music team and the dance team were way out in front of us. And we had, uh, we had an interesting, knotty couple of months trying to figure out how to work together, how to listen to each other, where the various strengths were. Uh, uh, we were like in two different camps for a while until we came together. So. But then you, you, there was a workshop, wasn't there? No. 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 There was never a workshop. No, there, there was, was never, never a workshop. workshop. <coughs> well, they wanted everybody to go to that kept telling me how fabulous it was. Reading. Reading. One, one there was a reading that Jack did in December. That yep. That it's been, it'll be about a year, year this Friday. It's a year today that Jack and Jerry worked with what is now our cast, really. Mm -hmm. For the first time. For the first time. So that's remarkably quick, I have to tell mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you, what made you fall in love? You, did, did you fall, you fell in love at the reading, didn't you? Well, I was, I was coming down with love <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, along the way. I, you were I, inventing uh, it at the time. You did a reading but hadn't committed to it? Or yeah, this was his I said to them, I, my agent reminded me of this, I said, and I think we talked about this, I said, if I can't move this book, I don't want to do the show. So I asked for the reading because I felt th that if, if I didn't believe that the story held together, I wasn't the right person to do this. And, and I know they wanted a commitment, and they were acting like it was a done deal. But I said I wouldn't commit until after the reading, right? Is but that right? Yes, you did. But and we were very nervous about right. that. Right. Yeah. The reading reflected changes that you had asked yeah. for. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it did. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so we did this reading, and it was like a two-part day. It was so much fun, I cannot tell you. Uh, uh, these people came in and sat down, and, and it was in ostensibly what happens in the Neil Simon Theater. They, they just went nuts. And stuff that we thought was good, was good. And stuff that we thought, eh, was good. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we, knew, no. we knew by the end of the day that we were in the presence of but, something. But what crazy. did you do between the two readings? I gave notes. It was <laughs> great. And they yeah. changed. We cut lines. We changed. We yeah. Yeah. changed. Yeah. It's like yeah. Saturday Night Live. Yeah. But, but he still hadn't committed. Well, yeah, I was, come on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, I, I smelled there. the roses by that time. <laughs> <laughs> what about Tom? How did he come in? I worked about six months in, for that December reading. We, we yeah. worked toward that one. And it wasn't right then, but we knew, we knew what we had to do, I think. But or a lot of what we had to do. And from, from that reading a, a year ago-ish, um, then a, a production plan was, was invented to go out of town. I well, want to talk I about actually, that. We should put oh, well, this to Richard. Because okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not clear myself about the sequence, other than that we did another couple of readings and went to Seattle. Now, um, I, I noticed, no, I can tell you about that. What, Seattle? No, here's what happened. Um, I, have, I run this theater in San Diego, the, the, the Globe Theater, and 
while, and some of my problem, oh, you don't really want to hear this, but <laughs> some, some of my problem is I, I work outside the globe and I work with the globe, and I always have to find projects that I think are containable that I can use at the globe because then I'm not working two careers. And so <coughs> I knew that Hairspray was too big. We could not possibly go to the theater in San Diego with Hairspray with its 1,900 people. <laughs> but, but, but I was also working on another play, which will be opening this Thursday right. at the Mathel Barrymore Theater called Imaginary Friends. And, uh, and that was coming into fruition to be done at the Globe. So I'm still not committed to Hairspray until I hear this reading. And then this reading is really great. So they say, okay, we're going to do this in September. And I said, I can't do it in September because I'm doing Imaginary Friends at the Globe. And Margot hit the ceiling. She just hit the ceiling. And she said, you can't do this. And I said, I, it's my theater. I can't shoot my own people in the, in the foot here. I can't do anything about it. There's the commitment. There's, I can't do it. So she said, well, when can you do this show? <laughs> <laughs> just like that. When can you do it? And I said, quite calmly, I am available from March until August. And she said, we'll take it. <laughs> and then we found Seattle. You guys found Seattle. Yeah. The, because the Jerry and I insisted actually, that we go out. That story is actually the punchline to another common you know, question that we're asked is, the, the um, opening in August worked out so wonderfully for us. People said, how did you get the idea to open in August? You know, where did that brilliant idea came from? And, the, uh, and Seattle worked out wonderfully as well. And both of them were actually... Um, a product of the fact that he said, I have from March 16th to August 20th, and then I'm gone. Right. And we had to fit in the readings, the out-of-town, and the opening in New York. Um, we had opened other shows in August, so it wasn't something we shied from. I mean, we knew it wasn't as bad as people have said it is. Traditionally said. Traditionally said, but, but it really just was a function of his schedule. Now, you, you said, which is true, that you were <coughs> part of Tom Bertel and Steve Baruch and Mark Rouse and you that. Um, I, n I noticed, if I counted correctly, that there are 17 names, two groups, two companies, and one set of initials. I'm so glad you did that, because people ask me how many, and I, I well, said, Well, I want to know who they are. Um, <laughs> I mean, th th these are the producers. These are people who have billing on the title page somewhere. Margot does come first, which, which I've always thought meant that it was her project to begin with, which seems to be That's accurate. And obviously, Richard and his gang came, if not seconds, soon on. But just generally, well, the way who it happened asked? was that when I first decided to, um, actually when I had optioned the material uh, in the spring of 89, I had been introduced to this young guy who was then 25, 26 years old, Adam Epstein. And one of the things I loved to do, I'm a former teacher, so one of the things I love to do is, is sort of teach producing. And he wanted to come on board. He loves musicals and he had access to funding. And so I said, come on board and we'll do it together. So he came on, and that was, and then the, then we, he went through the process of Mark, Scott, Mark, and um, then when we had the f first, before we had the first reading uh, in the, in two th 2000, 2000, June of May of 2000, uh, I don't mean to correct you, <laughs> but I actually have that in my notes, um, uh, we needed a general manager. And I asked Richard if he would general manage at that point. He was not, he had not committed as a co-producer or anything. He just came down. And um, Richard and his partners came down, and they loved the show. And so they said, yes, we want to be partners. So then there were three of us, three entities. Right. And then um, 
I think that's what it was until we had the re until we yeah. had that reading a year ago. So I mean, the idea of the um, I'm surprised actually that people are still surprised about the number of people over the title um, in shows. It's some of them are very active and work continually. Some work just at various stages of the enterprise, and there are some people for whom it's the price of a large investment. But these shows costing ten and a half, eleven million dollars, there really is no other way to do it. And the system works, I think, really very well these days. It's, it's almost impossible to run an enterprise this size with, with the, the legendary loan producer that everyone talks about. I would like to see them running a show that spends a half a million dollars a week and keep track of it all and do all of the marketing and do all of the management and administration. Or those shows used to open and recoup in six or seven months. And if they lost money, they lost a relatively modest amount of money. These things can sink you. If you try and do it yourself, they can be career-ending. So people are loath to do it. So uh, this system has developed, and frankly, I think it works quite well. There's always a core of a lead producer and a few other people who do the actual work. Everyone else um, uh, is, is generally are people who are involved in a great many shows. So their opinions are very worthwhile. They usually have something to add to the process. The risk is spread, and everyone lives to um, fight another day if the show loses, as opposed to being out of business. Yeah, can I? That, I think that's very well said. That was beautifully uh, put. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Can I assume though that all those people give their notes to you or to you, and not yeah, to the uh, rest of you? Yes. There's yeah. always a. Uh, uh, <laughs> with us, it's, it's Margot and and on on this show. Um, there always is a designated hitter, so to speak, that all of the producers give all of their notes to. And um, we pride ourselves on all of our shows that we don't bother the artists with the, that we protect the artists against the opinions of everyone else. Everything is focused. The producers speak with one voice. Any arguments that they have between them are fought. But, privately, right. and then someone is designated to go talk to the artists about it. I also, s since we're here, can, can <coughs> we assume from what you just said that the, the cost of s hairspray was between 10 and a half and 11? It was 10 and a half. And the weekly running costs are 500 About 500. Um, did you make money in Less Seattle? Less than that. We did make money in Seattle. Going out of town costs about, the other, you know, the other common question is why do these things cost 10 and a half million dollars? Going out of town the way we did, with a full-blown, out-of-town, full boat, everyone there, designers, associates, trying to do the Broadway show out of town, cost about $2 million. So you can deduct that from the 10 and a half right away. We made about eight in, in, in uh, Seattle, so the net cost to us was about a million, too. That's amazing. Yeah. That's and it was about, actually, very similar numbers. Um, uh, you don't mean we made eight? Well, when... With the deal that was made with regard to the ticket income. We didn't lose, yeah. The net cost to us was like one, two. Yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. But yeah. the actual cost, if yes. there wasn't any. If there wasn't any ticket income on the other side going to the theater. But I think that money to. is such a valuable investment. Well, yes. No, absolutely. So great but just, the, just everything. <coughs> to clarify what you said, that, that if, if you, as you did, you, the first time the <coughs> costumes were on stage, the orchestrations were played, the lights were mm -hmm. done, the set was put together, is in a place out of New York. That means you have to bring not only the everybody. physical material, but everybody, the designers, the assistant designers, the, like that. Yeah, your housing, feeding, mm -hmm. you know, 125 people. 
Everything is truck from New York. Oh, right. the, the other thing that I think is really impressive, and I and I bring this up, not that I wouldn't normally, except that I heard yesterday or <coughs> earlier this last week that there was a show that was very, very under uh, capitalized. And I have to say, I give enormous credit to uh, Richard's office and, and Laura Green, especially, that uh, we were right on target. I mean, the, the that came the, in right on budget. Came on right on budget. I kept saying, oh, it can't be ten and a half million dollars. This is way too much. I kept saying this over and over again. Well, as it turned out, it was exactly, exactly right. So it was a great job. Can, can I just ask? I, I, I think part of the budgeting process is at the beginning is a guesstimate. Yeah. Yeah. If if you're at a stage where you really don't know what the set is like, for example, right. you're guessing about some items like that. And then when when a set is designed and built, there is it, it, there it's bid, correct? I mean, it, uh, the different elements are all bid, and then they come in with a number that you then have to either say that's much too much, you've got to cut back, or that's great. Yeah, you can usually tell from the design before the bids that it's going to cost three million dollars instead of the million two or three that you have. Did you have so there's a dialectic that begins at that point. <laughs> Do I send something here? Well, well, when is well, the conversation going to come back to me? <laughs> <laughs> in, a moment, in a moment. In a moment. Now, when we first, they always like the business. See, they always like the business questions, and we can get them back to the art. <laughs> when we first saw the David Rockwell's presentation at the set, mm -hmm. that was quite impressive. You could have mounted it at the Met. <laughs> How much of it is on stage at the uh, Neil Simon? Well, quite a bit of, quite a bit of it now. Everything yes. but the hair curtain. Yeah. I was going to say, tell about the hair curtain. That's a great story, how we had to fly out to L.A. and talk about that. Da David Rockwell, who had done, worked with, Jerry, you tell this part. This is, this <laughs> what? Is the design process about the about Well, we spent, Jack and I, when we got the show, spent, spent our days and nights in David's office designing the set with David. Was David on by David, the time you guys came, or did you bring David no, came they, on. I had worked with David on, on the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I said to Jack, you've got to meet him. I said, he's brilliant, he's fresh, he's new, you've got to meet him. So we went to breakfast, uh, breakfast at the coffee shop in Union Square, and Jack fell in love with him. He, he's, just, he's relatively new to the theater. He's a master ar architect. Yeah, but he's always wanted to do the theater, like Mark always wanted to write a Broadway musical, <laughs> but you have to go make money. Uh, so he did something else. So now he's doing what he loves. And, um, and he was brilliant. And so we went and we started collaborating with him and talking about ideas. And these guys have an, a painting in their house of a Ken doll that's made out of light bright pegs. And I said, God, that would be fabulous as the back wall of the show. And we went to David's and we told David about the light bright idea. And we go into his office. He has the toy the next day and all the pegs. And we're picking the pieces apart and putting them in. And we put it at the back of the set. And you go, that's it. That was it. And Collaboration so, at work. Yeah. So we but his contribution, which was, was really cool, I mean, everybody throws their best thing at a show, their best joke, their best musical number, their best concept, whatever. David, in, in accommodating us, had this idea that the curtain for the show should be hair. <laughs> Just the big hair. Logical. <laughs> yeah. And that at one point, when the curtain went up, you saw this hairdo, and it was hilariously funny. And it, he wanted re not real hair, no but hair. he wanted mohair. He wanted it to be well. It was tons of thousands of dollars, <laughs> and and as we kept compromising, and I think it was Gilgood who said theater is the art of compromise. Uh, as we began to do this huge elephant tango of this is too much money. What are you willing to give up? 
we kept holding on to the hair curtain mm -hmm. because we and the, the light bright wall and right. the light bright wall and the hair curtain were the two things that we said we must have them because they were waters esque they were never seen before they were indigenous to what we were our enthusiasm right and we did have a, 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 a showdown in Los Angeles <laughs> where I had to fly up from or drive up from San Diego and, and meet everybody at a hotel room and get on the telephone because we had to cut stuff out Cutting. and I was finally I took David into a, the bathroom at one point <laughs> and I said does it have to be air can we, is, is there some other way we can do it I said I want I want so badly to save this and we we did find the compromise finally been able to do it. Right? Red well, rope it is, is it not red rope? Tubing. It's a, it's Surgical tubing. tubing. Whatever it's it is, tubing. I bought it as hair, I loved it, because you don't know it's here until yeah. the second. But yeah. that yeah. is really important, because that was the, you you hit the nail on the head, because you said actually, aesthetically, it's not right to have it hair. It's yeah. better if it... It's too real. It was too real, right. It was too real. It was, scary. It was sort of scary. I mean, you see this little model, and there's this big wig. <laughs> and you think, God, that's funny. And then you think, go into a theater and see a huge, big wig. And you see and big enough. You've got enough big wigs on there. Big wigs we got. I want to get back to these guys. They've been far, far too quiet. I want to I turn the, the, the top dials back to the very beginning. You wrote four songs on spec. Did yes. you base them on anything? From watching the movie over and over. So you, you knew you were in the 60s somewhere, 50s, 60s? 62. You knew the chord progression that goes with the... Yeah. 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 And it's a, it's a uh, era of music that we both love and happen to have been involved with projects that already kind of celebrated that style of music. Well, South Park for one, but that was music. Well, South Park is in the 60s, but... Well, with Bette Midler, who yeah. we call the Margaret Mead of pop culture, she sort of, uh, you know, also introduced Her first records, you know, uh, very much uh, showed the theatrical uh, th theatricality to 60s pop music. She had great arrangements by Barry Manilow of uh, Chapel of Love and Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Leader, Leader of the Pack. Of the pack and, and already their original <coughs> records are theatrical and then she, she amped them up. And um, I worked on a disastrous Broadway review called Leader of the Pack that in its off-Broadway form was a wonderful celebration of uh, the songs of Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry. So anyway, I had this music in me and um, what were we talking about? I just <laughs> wanted to know if, if you if you went after any specific models for songs or just oh, sort of oh well you know the yeah. script that the, like like they had mentioned um, Welcome to the Sixties is a line from the um, movie from and the movie. as is Big Blonde and Beautiful although in the movie it's Tracy says now all Baltimore knows I'm Big Blonde and Beautiful <laughs> so we had this great title Big Blonde and Beautiful but as soon as I went to the piano it just seemed like it, it felt should like be a, a Roadhouse blues, blues Big Blonde blues. and Beautiful we suddenly realized well this is more Motormouth Mabel now this is meanwhile the bad way to write a musical we learned. <laughs> Because it's you can't just say, oh, this seems like a more motormouth thing, and then you write this song, song and then you have to and everyone it. loves the song, right. and it seems so great. But like, what does it have to do with? Well, it, I mean, it had to do with a point of view that's very hairspray. But where does it fit in the plot? It was the same with Good Morning Baltimore because I thought, oh, I wanted to write, oh, what a beautiful morning. Okay, fits <laughs> <laughs> right into hairspray. Right, right. I mean, that at least didn't need to be as shoehorned as as uh, like Big Blonde and Beautiful, and it took uh, through the readings the discovery of how can we um, <coughs> not lose the baby with the bathwater. I mean, because it seemed like, well, maybe we're just going to have to cut the song if it doesn't fit in the plot. But everyone just sort of joined forces to say, right. let's hold Especially on. Especially with Good Morning Baltimore, because if someone said, I, I don't know how to start the show with a girl in bed. And enter Jerry. Jerry had the idea. Say, well, the, it should be like an overhead shot. <laughs> the cameras then it took off from there. Great idea. I mean, it's, and that's another example of how just one person, like just what he, Scott just said, one person just says, "I don't know that that this is a 
this is a, a um, what is it, plus and minuses. This is a, you know, a, a bad thing. And then Jerry just says, well, no, the girl's just in, in bed. bed. And, and right. it becomes this great opening oh, moment. Right. And it's so Waters-esque. the moment of, yeah, of right. the show. It's so John it's, Waters that it's... Uh, it's a glass half full. I think that's what I was... The, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting to note here, too, that these three guys, Jerry and Mark and Scott, had this show in their bones for a long time before they were... They ever came on board to do it. And we show. tried to get Jerry. Margo was gun shy of Jerry actually directing a Broadway musical at this point, which he's completely ready to do now <laughs> if he ever could leave Brian's well, <laughs> <Ryan> side. <laughs> which, you know, maybe should never happen. They're such, they're, they're such a perfect yeah. team. But, but we had actually we mentioned had Jerry. Mentioned to Jerry was our first she's choice. A, she's, as a director, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going yeah, to. You're, 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 the, you're the, uh, the unknowns, the you know, unknown factor. It all ended up being great, right. uh, but we knew that Jerry was so perfect, perfect for the show that he—I mean—he just is the show. He yeah, just, and but he the proved that. I—I I, am, um, you know, uh, Jack. Uh, well, the funny thing about, you know, uh, hairspray is I tried to get the rights. Oh. <laughs> Many, many, many years ago. Now you were trying when I was trying. I think, yeah, because I, I, many, I, many I knew years there ago, was, but I was told there was somebody was nobody, else trying to get. And you know, I was this chorus dancer who was just starting to choreograph, and I tried to purchase the rights to Hairspray because I fell in love with the movie when I saw it. But you know, the the funny thing is, is that the collaboration that Jack and I have shared over the past couple of years with Full Monty and this and um, Imaginary Friends is incredible. In, and we sort of take care of each other and allow each other to do the work because I'm allowed to go crazy and fly around the room and wave my arms like Corky Sinclair. <laughs> and Jack keeps me focused on the story, which is really what every successful show is about. Like he said, if the book, you can be so easily seduced by the music, and the music is amazing, but the story has got to get <coughs> you satisfied in the end. Now, there was an article when you guys were out of town, I think, about Maybell's song in the second act, and there was contention about the song should be cut, the song should stay. Somebody t tell me about that. Talk about oh, it was that. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the song that's in now is the one that... That's the that song. Yes. It wasn't, so it, the one that's in now was not replaced. This, this, was, this is um, the dance I talk about, about how we learn to move with each other and how you listen to various people and have to make decisions as best you can, uh, taking not your own prejudice necessarily into consideration. Uh, when I heard, first heard that song, uh, when I first heard the demo after I had seen the book and thought, this is salvageable, this, the, the demo played like a, like a hit. I mean, it was very clear that these songs were, were, were better than any score I think I'd ever heard uh, coming down the pike. Uh, for a brand new musical, I, they were, it, this had to succeed. Uh, we had to solve it. And I saw, I heard this phenomenal song at the end of it. Uh, and what's it called? I know, I know where I've been. I know where I've been. And and uh, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I thought it was moving. It's actually the reason I felt I really wanted to commit <coughs> to it because there was something moving in 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 the song that wasn't evidenced in the rest of the music that had to do with real, with real people, a real situation. Now, I couldn't see how to stage it, because it seemed like such an apotheosis of a character. And I knew that in the story, May, Motormouth Maybell, it, it, it's a rainy night, they're secreted in her place, 
you know, it's an underground sort of railway kind of moment. And this glorious thing comes out. And I was having a lot of trouble conceptualizing it. And I was getting a lot of feedback from the outside, from the producers and other people, not just us, saying it's not right. It's too heavy. It's too. It's the wrong song. It's the wrong song. And you know, when when really experienced people tell you this, you have to listen, even if you disagree. You have to listen, and you have to say, what is it that makes them get to this point of view, right? So we kicked it around and kicked it around, and I thought, is there another way to do it? Is there is there another version of this song that would happen? And God love them. We wrote one. They wrote it. <laughs> and, and, and I, I, you know, I, 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 as diplomatically as I could, I said, I love this song, but is there another voicing that we could hear? They wrote this song. We said, yes, this is good, this, because there's relief when somebody says, sure, I'll give you a red rose instead of the, right. the yellow rose. Here's a red rose. And you think, oh, good, we got a red rose here. This is great. This is terrible. You know, we right. put it in, and it was more of a more of a muchness. It was too much of the same thing, and we realized we realized the f the six of us that that we were lacking in in what I would have to say is the dangerous end of the show. Uh, we were sailing so well, but you got to it's like a Navajo rug. You got to have some little aberrant black line going out that is a mistake that gives it just that kind of tensile strength. And we've, we've the, the, the African-American kids in the, in the show were m missing resonance. They didn't feel that they were voicing why they were there in the show. Very valid point. Um, and we had a powerful day when we brought the song back and played it for the company, which was... I mean, the song that's, that the, stayed. The song that's in there now. and and. Uh, and even though it wasn't yet right, it was infinitely too wet and, and, and emotional. It touched everybody in the room in a way that you thought, oh no, wait a minute. Uh, this is doing something that nothing else has done. And we fought for it. We fought, we, uh, you know, and, and it was healthy. But I mean, there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of concern. There was a lot of cr criticism. We, we kept changing. Mark kept massaging the, rela the, the, the arrangement so that it didn't sit down, that it, it moved, it had more joy in it. And we, f we fought and fought and fought to, and, and, and achieved it together. And it is to everyone's credit, especially the, the naysayers, that when push came to shove, we said, it's in, and they said, okay. And is, is everybody now happy with it? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I laugh. Well, my comment every time I see the show <laughs> is I turn next to my assistant, and the, this Mary Bond Davis does the daylights out of it, right? And she finishes the song, and it's this huge ovation. And I always turn to my assistant and say, cut it. It's no good. He <laughs> <laughs> did that yesterday. I I did, I, yeah. One of the things about the song that's, I'll never forget when we were in Seattle, that's and right. Mark and Scott went on stage, and the song used to end, um, um, I know where I've been, dun, 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 no words. There were no words. And then it ended, and then they wrote, oh, when we, when, when I'll, I'll give thanks to my God because I know where I've been. And they took the song that they had already made that was spectacular and they gave it more. 
they made it super spectacular. It just was another notch of twisting and continuing to make the work the best you could make it. And that day clinched it. And we saw it in front of an audience in Seattle, then we knew. No. Was there was always yeah. a question, oh. but, but then it just went through the roof. We could feel that feeling in the audience, and it was there forever. All discussion really ended as soon as it played in front of an audience. Yeah. Right, it was all yeah. theoretical before that. Yeah, people true. were saying the critics won't like it, it's too sentimental, it's too this, it's too that. But the audience, the first time it played in front they of an audience, that was it. Was it. Well, I think, we, I think we always yeah. knew the audience would like it. I think the, the issue was, and I had many talks with John Waters uh, about this, because you know he had ideas like that. It was great, except that she should levitate at the end. Or something. Oh no, he wanted to. He wanted to. Uh, her Punches, people throwing Heal a, a crippled woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds. But I think actually it's a very good exam example of reimagining material because it is true. It is not in John Waters' vocabulary necessarily. But when reimagined for the stage, it, it really does land. There's just no question about it. It gives the audience, also as Jack says, it gives the audience a, a, a moment to have another kind of experience because they're up. You know, Jack, Jack had this, he said to me, you know, this is a train, or I don't know how you explain this, we're, we're just going to keep moving the entire time. We're just not going to stop. But this is a moment where we actually let down. It's, it's also it's an emotional moment, as we were saying earlier, when you're doing a, a musical comedy, it's a mistake to make it all frivolous because then there's nothing there. And this is a moment yeah. that, that you're trying to get everybody to, 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 to pay attention for a moment and feel, feel something. And yeah, it's a show about civil rights. Mm -hmm. And as Jerry said, we didn't want to be heavy-handed, but I think it's something that can be experienced in music uh, more organically than with a lot of dialogue or talk about the issues. Yeah. The best John Waters story, though, is that the first time he heard the score and he heard Timeless to Me, and I looked in the room and he had uh, tears in his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That sounds great. Okay, on that note, we're going to pause for a few words from Isabel Stevenson. Before we get back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre seminar on production, I would like to remind you that these seminars are only one of the many year-round programs that the Wing undertakes. You're probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Award, which is given for excellence, achievement of theatre in the Broadway theatre. We also have an important grants and scholarship program, providing aid to off and off-off Broadway theatres, as well as to promising students to pursue studies in the theatre arts. As a long-established charity, dating back from World War I and World War II and our famous Sage Shore Canteen. All of our programs are designed to reward and promote excellence in the theater, to introduce young people and their families to theater, and the magic unfolds. We take pride in the work we do, remain grateful to our members and everyone whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theater Wing. Our work is so important to the theater and the community. We are proud to be a part of this exciting industry. And so now, let's return to our panel on production and our moderator, Ted Chapin. Ted? Thank you, Isabel. Um, I think we are, we're going to start this portion of the, of the seminar with some questions from the audience. So can we have the first question? Hi, my name is Eric. I was wondering, how important is it to have the role of the mother being played by a man and did that take effect in calling it a family show? 
I think you should start on the, this is a conversation Mark and I had and Scott had very, very early. So right, right. We always felt that it was important to the piece because it was true to the John Watersism of it that it should be played by a man. Although John, uh, John originally wanted Anthony Hopkins for the role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he first said, I don't know, he don't, don't have it be played by a man. He didn't want anyone to try to uh, compete with Divine's memory. Then he said, well, if it has to be a man, Anthony Hopkins would be my he first would choice. Do it. <laughs> he was serious. <laughs> <laughs> no since, since putting the show on, we realized that it being played by a man just helps the, it to be that often used word, sub, submer, sub, subversive. But it, it just... Uh, it's, it's, it means a whole other, it gives this whole other level of, of being an outsider and... and right. But Harvey plays it so straight as, as a woman yeah. and never winks to the audience and said, look, I'm a man, do it, play a woman. I mean, the fact that it's a man, it. it's subtext, some kind of subtextual thing going on, but Harvey and the audience, I mean, they just accept him as the mother from the second word he says. I actually know that there were people in Seattle who had no idea that Harvey was a man. Right. Uh, we would see people in the intermission, intermission. standing and saying, well, wait a minute, is this Harvey Firestein? Is this, that's the wo woman. <laughs> and then they would be completely baffled by it. So <laughs> they, they buy it completely. The, uh, and there is something subversive and, and intrinsic. You know, I'm a great believer in respecting the template of whatever it is you're working on. And you can change it you can you can make uh, any sort of of uh, aberrations that you want to, but there has to be something that you hold on to, that is be why you fell in love with it. Joyce Carey says, "Where's the exciting discovery with which you began?" That's always a good thing to go back to, and and uh, I think that's true in this case that there there's something that goes forward from this idea of this bizarre mother, that is. If a, if a woman did it, might mock the woman, but the fact that the man has to work so hard toward the integrity of that performance is what I think grounds it in a kind of reality. And is it now part of the template of, of Hairspray? Will, will Edna always be played by a man? As far as I'm concerned, yes. Will Anthony yeah. Hopkins do it in Marvel? <laughs> He's dying to do it. <laughs> 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 he wants the movie first, and we said we, know, we will talk about it. <laughs> and when all the talking is also done, and you kind of, when you're putting it on, you start thinking about all these things, but we once met with a, a director when Mark was first putting it, I think this is why she, <laughs> sent it over here, is when we met with this one director, he was like, oh, shouldn't we play by a man? And why Why should we play by a man? And we were just like, um, bye. It would be fun. Because <laughs> 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 it would be fun. <laughs> so outside of all this other more uh, intellectual stuff, which is very important, it's just, it's fun. It's just well, another element of the fun. That, that was a great moment. <laughs> seeing whether collaborations are going to work when I was speaking before about that. That most important moment when uh, Mark O'Donnell went out to California. This this was a great moment in in Mark and Scott's studio, where this particular person said, "Well, you know, I don't, I I can't." And he was being very genuine. I I can't find a reason why this should be played by a uh, man. And Mark, in his as you can all see in his own very special way, said, "Well, because you know, it's fun." And then there was this. Dead silence in the room, and it was. I, we got out of there so quickly. I mean, it was what, what, what is your sense of it being played by drag acts? Because I know I've heard uh, written somewhere that Danny Larue and or Dame Edna are interested. Are, mm -hmm. That's a good mm -hmm. distinction. Yeah. That's commenting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the so interesting thing about the drag performer 
is there's always nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And look, I'm just kidding. But my favorite moment, my personally favorite moment in the show, is the moment that Harvey walks over to his daughter and says, uh, compliments her, and she says, you've got to say that. You're my mother. And Harvey's response is, I'm more than your mother. I'm a woman in love, and we know about these things. And the audience doesn't laugh. They don't laugh because it's a very real moment between a mother and a daughter. And it's a very parenting moment. But we don't ever comment on it. And so a drag performer who's famous for being a drag performer will always be outside the outlines and try to remind you that I'm just slumming here. And we don't want that. We, we're serious. Well, well, In a play I, about acceptance, yeah. the yeah. fact that the, the whole world of the play is accepting without comment <laughs> the fact that the mother's played by Harvey is sort of the ultimate example of, of acceptance. Yeah. Something that'll come up for us in casting, as we're lucky <laughs> enough to have to cast future productions, is for us to not, on the other hand, um, be prejudiced about people who come from drag. Because as Harvey did, what, yeah, there yeah. are people who are going to want to take it seriously who we should not... Uh, I mean, like Tay Medna, I've yeah. worked with Barry. Barry. I know Barry as an actor could have definitely, you know, as with his other characters that live in him is there. And there are outrageous people who are doing drag right now, like, you know, in Chelsea, who, you know, maybe they have huge eyelashes and, you know, but th they could approach it as an actor. But right. don't you think also the working class quality is very important? in that, because we, we've talked about whether somebody was too urbane to yes, play that role. Yes, in right. It's a blue-collar uh, atmosphere, Anthony and so, Hopkins. and a drag performer tends to go upscale. They're more <laughs> Norman Shearer than <laughs> that's that's part part of even, that's even Harvey. I mean, that's the story when Harvey first came out on stage in Seattle in costume. <laughs> he had been back there with the makeup and all, and, and it took us a few days, weeks, to get even Harvey to remember that, you know, who he has to start There's the show no as. There's no glamour, right. Because, you know, once he started, you know, looking at himself as a woman, he wanted it to be as beautiful as he could be. <laughs> and that Schmata standing <laughs> behind <laughs> the ironing board. Let's go to the next question. Oh, my name is LaShonda, and my question is for Marga Lyons. I wanted to know what exactly you meant when you said that you knew right away that the show had its own personality. It's a good question. Um, it... It has a style, and, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> the, the movie, you know, with Divine and this fat girl and um, these, these very off-center characters who are, at the same time, very rooted in reality, and a kind of subversive quality that is, that is not generic. It is a very particular voice, and uh, you just, you don't see that in a, you know, typical mainstream event. Next question. Hi, my name is Felicia, and my question is directed to the producers. I wanted to know what exactly are the rights, and how do you get them? Richard? Interesting. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated question. The rights are everything that you, <clears throat> the difference between, the main difference between rights to a play and rights to a film is that, um, or, or from the writer, is that in a play you obtain very particular rights from the author, and everything that you don't obtain specifically from the author, he keeps. So that, whereas in a film usually it's work for hire, where the writer is paid and then the person doing the film owns everything connected with it. 
So in the case of a play, you basically obtain the right to <clears throat> present the play live before an audience. And if you successfully do that in New York, you then can obtain the rights to present the play in London or Canada or Europe or somewhere else. But the basic idea is that you're only taking those rights, other things like movie rights, um, book rights, and all of that, stay with the authors in a, in a, in a play. And that's the, the, the main difference. But, but, but also in this <coughs> instance, there, there is the rights that were acquired by the, the, by the film company are called underlying rights that you have to acquire and then give it to writers to take from, the, from there and then they, they create their own set of rights. That helps answer the question. Next question. Hi, my name is Rita and my question is, how did you find the performers for the show? Well, I have to say that uh, the very first person who auditioned was Marissa, who plays Tracy. And um, we saw a lot of girls and there was only Marissa in the end. And a lot of the casting came through Bernie Telsey was really instrumental. Um, we, we hardly had auditions at all in the beginning, and, and it's almost the same cast that we have on Broadway. Now. Bernie Kelsey is a, a casting director. He's a casting director. Casting director. Next question. Hello, my name is Amber, and this question is for the producers. What exactly are you doing to bring in or target the African-American audiences? Well, this is, this is a... Um, a challenge. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things that we're doing is we have a, a, a radio campaign. We've brought in a lot of um, people from the African-American uh, community who um, are, are, common, are commentators on radio. Um, we're doing some advertising in African-American um, papers. We've had a lot of group leaders, uh, people, group sales um, representatives who sell tickets to groups come to the show. We've had a reception for them. Um, some of our cast members go out and perform in African-American, um, uh, I don't know what I would say, uh, they will go out into churches, also into kind of conventions and things, people coming together um, for certain expos, black expos. Um, we're going to approach um, the sororities, the 100 black men, the, you know, these are the kinds of um, outlets that we have. It is, it's not easy, um, but, you know, I think mainly because they don't, the black audience, the African-American audience doesn't know what the theme of the show is, and that's what we have to get out. Um, we also need to do more advertising on the radio with the music so that it, you know, particularly with Run and Tell That or I Know Where I've Been, so that the African-American audience knows that there's something there that resonates for them. what about making more tickets available to young people in the schools? Well, um, you know, we, we've made, I think, what we, we, we've made a commitment to these, um, these uh, tickets um, that we auction off every day that we have a lottery for. Um, and we have the standing room. The truth is, Isabel, that we have a responsibility to our investors, and we have a $10.5 million <coughs> capitalization that we need to return. And so we've done the best we can in this department right now. But that's right the investment now. in the future. It is. And that's why we have the 40-odd tickets that we have mm -hmm. for very reasonable prices. But I, I should also point out that, that Margot is one of the enlightened producers that used a program that the Theater Development Fund <laughs> runs. Um, to get tickets er early on, before Hairspray became the huge hit that mm -hmm. it is when it came to New York. There was a nice Careful. 
Remember Moose that. Murders? Moose Murders. <laughs> he can say it. I can say it. I'm not funny. You can't say it. No, but, but that, the TDF um, subsidized ticket program, the idea is to bring students and people who, you know, who can't afford full price tickets to come to, to, the, to the theater. So if, they, if you were lucky enough, you had an opportunity to see Hairspray in an early preview before every newspaper told you that it was Moose Murders too. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Hi, yes, my name is Dennis. This question is for uh, Mr. O'Brien and Mr. Mitchell. Could you talk about the director and choreographer collaboration? And specifically, what do you two like about each other? <laughs> that's, that's, a great question. that's a great question. Basically, I get up, the first thing I do is I call Jack. <laughs> well, you know, here's something. Then I eat my breakfast, then I call Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and we decide we're going to wear. Yeah. Um, Black. Where we're going to meet. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jerry and I are both from Michigan, which is, uh, which is a, uh, a kind of code word for saying we're corny in the same way. Um, and and uh, so much of this collaborative thing has to do with chemistry, as to what kinds of, it's just like choosing your own friends. Certain mixes are better than others. And we met years ago. We've been trying to work together for quite a long time, over 10 years, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it just us. didn't work out. Our schedules didn't coincide, or the properties weren't quite uh, in, in the right proportion until finally the full Monty when, when we really <coughs> sort of tied into each other and then uh, it's, it's, we've been going strong since then. But I love his sense of humor. I love the fact that, that he's dangerous, that he doesn't care what he says or cares uh, so that there's, he's completely unedited. <laughs> and so his enthusiasm is just out there. And, and it's very hard to work with people if they're hiding from each other. It's very hard to work with an actor or anyone if they're protecting themselves. One of the things I try to get people to do is to let their, take their armor off so we can be completely vulnerable together. And Jerry and I set a great tone in the room for that because it, there's great permission. We want to hear from everybody. No idea is too idiotic to be expressed. We never make fun of that. Uh, we we b both believe, I think, in a very loving and nourishing climate and that we can get the best out of people by making them comfortable and happy. And we both see eye to eye, we've always done that. And now we speak with one voice, I mean, we don't even... Uh, well, we, we don't speak with his voice. <laughs> <laughs> and with my body. <laughs> Jerry, did, did you do any research for the choreography of this production? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I, spent, I spent a lot of time at the museum, uh, Museum of Television. Uh, John was very clear that he didn't want steps that were after 1963. Uh, there was an innocence that was lost once Kenny, Kennedy was assassinated. And he wanted steps in 1962. So I went back to 1959 and sort of used, you know, the twist, the uh, mashed potato, the hully gully, um, a couple others, the pony. Yeah, lots of ponies. <laughs> and what is the Madison? The Madison is a simple line dance. Because it's in, the, it's one, one thing that it's was in, in the, the show. movie and it's well, in the show, created but it's in not Baltimore. on the album. It was created in Baltimore yeah. on the uh, Buddy Dean show. We actually it. sent up two of the Buddy Dean dancers. They, they came and, and they taught me the Madison. It's a line dance. One, two, on three, ships. four, five, six. <laughs> and then there's a caller and they call out a step, like, you know, uh, let's make an end and erase <laughs> it. And you do it when they say hit it. And then you go back to the Madison and you keep doing it. That was the step. Sort of boring on stage. We had to find a way to kind of 
make it interesting. Make it interesting. Yeah. interesting. I, I wanted to ask one, one question, um, th and I'll, I'll ask this as, as nicely as I can, but hopefully you can. Um, th there's a taste factor in a show like this that, that you sort of, there's a line that you have to walk, uh, clearly there's a line that you have to walk. Was there disagreement among all of you and or when did you listen to the audience that told you that joke is too far, that lyric is too raunchy? Well, I, I like to speak, I mean, I, I, I think all of us, speaking for myself and the producers, we, we ceded to Jack on this. I mean, he has, I think, pitch perfect taste. So you were our kind of arbiter, but how did you make those decisions? Well. The hell with it! I was born. I was alive in 1962. <laughs> I was dancing back in those days. I I know. I remember it so vividly. Uh, uh, what that felt like. What what we could and couldn't do. How in fact square most of us were in the 60s, in the early 60s. I mean, it wasn't until you know the Elvis and the Beatles and everybody broke out of that that people began to be who we are now and who we still have become. But prior to that. Uh, it was definitely Eisenhower time, mm -hmm. and and there was a lot of restriction. And I remember it very. So it was very easy for me to think of my mother <laughs> and what she would have approved of and what she wouldn't approved of, and those looks that she used to give me. And that's what I was given them. <laughs> There's a lyric about about Elizabeth Taylor and one of her husbands, and I just wondered if that was one that everybody thought, oh, oh that's okay, or yes, did somebody well. say, well, actually, hello, no, that's absolutely true because he says it in innocence. And 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 what we did with that was was the the, uh, the Richard Burton Elizabeth Taylor elision right. uh, um, is is uh, if that's exactly what I'm talking about if the actor doing it knows he's doing something slightly dirty then we're we're dead in the water if the kid says it because it was in fact powerful news at that time that relationship. Then it goes right over his head and into the future, and that's fine. But that's what we can't do. We can't step out and look at ourselves and say, weren't we funny uh, and silly and naive in 1962? Nobody in the play does that. Nobody in the musical does It was that. also just it was trying to stay pure to John, pure, that's ironic, uh, John Waters' voice, which ironically Hairspray is his most tasteful movie. Right, they even tried to get him to add words to the movie to get the rating. Oh, yeah. And he said no. Because it's a PG rating. <laughs> well, we wanted, we wanted our show to have a, a specific voice that didn't make it just be like something that had come before, like Bye Bye Birdie, which yeah. is great musical, but, you know, this could just be like, well, what, we should just go see Bye Bye Birdie. It had to have something John Watersy about it. And so there was always a little not so much of a struggle, you know, just no. sing, should it be this? There's a line right now in the show, a dialogue that I'm shocked at. And yet there are lyrics that we were asked to remove and lyrics that we Which chose to, you know, chose to fudge change. a little. There's, but there's one line of dialogue. Which line is that? Harvey's first line to Prudy. I still, f I just oh, find yeah. it yeah. shocking. What's that? The stains that you mean. Oh, oh yeah. Yes, yeah, about personal stains and laundry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I, I couldn't believe when I heard it the first time. I thought, well, they're going to cut that, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> it's in there. Well, we want, it's a it is a bit of a balancing yeah, act, oh, but we agree by consensus that you can call a girl a tramp, but not a whore. Because <laughs> one is almost innocent and the other is disturbing. So we wanted to be tasteless, but not. Uh, but not disturbing. It's supposed to be fun, tasteless. Mm -hmm. So you don't yeah, know what's coming. That is a show that can surprise you. Good point. You had talked about how he wanted. He thought he, John Waters was going to be outside of it, but he ended up being more interested. It, it, did, 
does he sign off on the show as it is now? Or are there still things, oh, lines he'd he like? He is his oh, biggest like fan. He yeah. loves the show. He is an absolute heaven. I was thinking while we were talking before, the two things he said to me at that lunch were the, the only the things he really felt we had to keep or that were important for the success of the movie and therefore for the show because people would remember them were uh, the Madison. He said the Madison has to be in the show and the lead has to be fat. He said to me, Margot, no plump has to be fat. And he accused me several times of being a fattest, which <laughs> means somebody who doesn't like fat people. Um, but we were, you know, of course, extremely lucky to get Marissa, who she's adorable. adorable. She's yeah. great. Yeah. So um, I was also thinking about the, the bad taste issue, or the wrong taste, I should say. Um, when Marissa was doing the thing in the jail, you remember, and I was going crazy because <laughs> she was grabbing, mm -hmm. and we got rid of that because yeah, that did. wasn't right. Yeah, all things that wouldn't have happened physically, gestures of familiarity, sexual references that were not kosher in 1962 went out. But did you let the audience tell you it, or did, was this well, just among you no. guys? We were pretty, I felt we were pretty aware mm -hmm. of what our parameters were always. I mean, you know, there's, let me give you a perfect example of Mark's line there. Yes, that is a very tough line, but what I felt was the most important thing is I had to give Harvey a laugh on his first line. I had to. He couldn't come out, be Harvey Firestein as Edna, and, and have a dud line. He needed a laugh. And so there you push the envelope a little bit because A, the audience is waiting for him, B, they want him to be funny, and C, if he takes it right there at the crest, then everything he says will be funny from then on. And that's why I, I, you know, I, we worked and worked and worked, as you remember, to get that, to get that laugh. Because, mm -hmm. uh, it, and I would have I defended um, a certain amount of latitude there in order to do that. But did you try other lines there? Or did sure. You? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You should try other lines. Better like this, better like this. Visu uh, yeah. That line went into all sorts of, uh, you know, it's very interesting about the rhythm of, of comedy that, and this has happened so many times in my life, that you work like crazy to get a laugh and you change it and you change, you make it shorter and then you change the last word and then you say take a breath before you do it, take the breath out and finally you get it and everybody seems to be able to do it. You go, you, you know, you go into the outback in, in, in Australia and the people are getting laughs with that line and you think, <laughs> This is unbelievable. How did it finally become concrete? But it does. And also we have the Jackie Hoffman issue, which is, was oh, another, yeah. um, because that, well, you should tell the Jackie story, because it's a kind well, of Well, Jackie, we were fans of from uh, her uh, downtown scene. Mm. As a Jackie will say, this is the first place she's been in with that has a curtain. <laughs> <laughs> and she plays three different. Yes, but when she first came in, it was for a reading, and she only had a very like three lines. And so as soon as we, she got these huge laughs on the three lines, mm -hmm. we started stretching and stretching and stretching, and then you know built up these parts for her. But that was a challenge so for you too, in terms yeah, of. Yeah, it was a challenge for Jack because she's sort of like a loose cannon yeah. in a way, and, and she's, she's the most John Watersy actress actually. Yeah. In She's a, yeah, she's a performer. Yeah. She's yeah. a performer. She's, she's more than anything else. Yeah. And she writes her own material, and she's hilariously funny. But I love the idea of having a show that would have this man playing a woman on one end of the spectrum, 
and a club act <laughs> over here at the end. And, and, the, and the, there's something about the largesse of the show that it can contain all of that. Again, it's what we talk about, the acceptance and the permission. Mm -hmm. It's really now, great. I, I wanted to ask you, there are, are a couple of quotes, or it's quite, let's put it this way, a couple of lines in it that get a reaction to the audience. And, and I wonder, one of them, certainly one of them comes from Gypsy, and I was told that the producers was not allowed to quote Gypsy. Did you quote Gypsy in here with, for me, just for the... It just, it just happened at rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal one day. It made us laugh. <laughs> we, we kept it in, and then... It's it, just, it just stays, yeah. stayed there. And well, then there's the line you asked yeah. about earlier where she says, uh, I'm a pretty girl mama, yeah. which seemed like a gypsy reference. And yet the cast, we realized, they were laughing, and they, they thought it was it's a Carrie reference, Carrie. the movie Carrie. She also right. says, I'm a pretty girl mama. So it's a multi-generational <laughs> right. reference. Because we also had to explain to the cast who the Gabor sisters were. So <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, that <laughs> <laughs> there is. I guess, the, I guess the, the, there is that. <laughs> um, and I just one last question. Did you have a tough time finding a logo and a, and a title treatment, or was it easy? Well, one of the people we haven't spoken about here who was, has been critical, I think Richard and I would agree, to the success of the show is Nancy Coyne, who um, is at the head of Sereno Coyne, a wonderful advertising agency uh, here. And she, this logo, she loved this show from the time she heard the first demo uh, of the songs, and she came up with this logo right out of the gate, another good sign um, for, I think, the success of a show. Do you go back? <coughs> you go back and take notes during the show. Yeah, who was oh, there yesterday? yesterday. Oh, okay. I was there yesterday. <laughs> How did they do, Jack? <laughs> they were they were unbelievable. I mean, I was. Uh, we go regularly. We have we have assistant directors and assistant choreographers who go in on a regular basis and and uh, and maintain the show. But Jerry and I are people who believe that we should go in regularly and and look at the work and make sure that it's that its integrity is intact and. Um, I saw a matinee yesterday that absolutely blew me out of the theater. They were wonderful. I think on that note, yeah. we're gonna, we could go on all day, but we're going to stop there. Um, thank you, panel, very much. Thank you. Uh, this is, uh, thank you. The Working in the Theater Seminars, American Theater Wing, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Thank you all for being here.